0: means that any sec, i think now we will have people joining us hello hello european travelers who are joining in the chat hello hello um that's it we're, we're live for a rail matter that was that was reasonably um pain-free hello everyone hello uh, listeners and, and viewers of the show i'm very very in fact i'm delighted i'm not just pleased i'm delighted to say that uh, john worth uh, is joining us hello john good evening Good evening. It's working. in the the, the sound is working. The no. audio levels. Uh, any anyone in the chat? If the levels are not quite right, give me a shout, and then I can I can fix it. But it should all be working fine. Oh my goodness. Um, we are in for a treat this evening, everyone. Um, it's episode one hundred and forty-seven: European Railways and the Implementation Gap. Um, this this title came pretty much directly from a blog that John wrote. Um, uh, before Christmas, I think it was, or or certainly kind of fairly towards the end of last year. Which was a really nice hook that made me think. Oh, it was in December actually. It was it was it was in December at some point I think, and it was a really nice hook into covering a lot of what you've been up to over the last year. But we we shall cover that in some detail momentarily. First, as it's become a weird transition, uh, uh, a, a weird tradition to transition us from uh, the fact that the UK government no longer publishes a a. Uh, weekly update on ridership statistics. I'm now putting up pictures of trains related to the episode titles. So, uh, rather appropriately, on a number of levels, as we mentioned, as we were talking about earlier, John. Um, episode 147 means that it, we're back. We're, there is no BR Class 147, but there is a DB Class 147, which is this slightly strange-looking machine. Um, I believe photographed not far from you <laughs> in the outskirts of Berlin. <laughs> um, yeah, so here it is. This shed-looking thing. Uh, it's very red. It's hauling some regional double-decker coaches. It looks very nice. So there we are. Nice shout-out to the DB uh, Class 147. Lovely. Um, no Wikipedia page. So if there are any real nerds out there, there's an English Wikipedia page waiting for you to write, um, unless it's already been absorbed into the tracks Wikipedia page. Anyway, that's a nerd out. It is a Trax. Yeah, thanks, John. <laughs> John in, real John and John in the chat. This is meta and confusing for me. Right, so this episode, we are going to be talking about Europe. Um, not... And, and, and the definition of europe we're going to be using is we're going to be talking about the eu because uh, there's got to be a limitation on scope and john for your cross border rail project you which we will talk about um, during the episode you you focused on 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 the eu uh, didn't you um so not any Euro, so the eurostar crossing for example isn't included in that because there's lots to fix on that but um, that isn't in scope is it that's all in scope it indeed so we will without further ado because we need to introduce John properly, we need to talk about the Cross-Border Rail Project, we need to talk about um, what on earth the EU actually is, all of these things and more um, in tonight's Rail after. Everyone, welcome to tonight's show. <laughs> Intercity 225 fades away there it goes um, we're left with um, with a st- slightly unflattering screenshot of um, of Mick Lynch in full flow on uh, LBC earlier today chatting to James O'Brien and um it was an interesting one because it was the first time it was the first time someone had uh, effectively cornered Mick Lynch on a, on a, on, a, on a point that I Understand his logic on it. Basically, it was James O'Brien pointing out you, the RMT, took a, a, a pro Brexit stance, um, and you know it's impacting on worker rights, so it has the potential to massively impact on worker rights. Da, 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 da. Um, why did you take this position? Uh, can you explain it? And, and it was quite, it was actually a reasonably interesting discussion i don't agree with mick lynch on on the and, and the rmt's logic on this i think it's naive but i can see where they were coming from and they, and they talked one of the things that mick lynch talked about was the problems being caused by the market liberalization inherent within the fourth and indeed the previous rail packages um indeed the fourth rail package and so we are going to come back around it felt like it, that that was today which is brilliant given that we were you know talking about this this is the episode so it feels like a good thing that we will tackle uh, later on but first before we do anything like that let us see john who has been sat in the background very politely waiting for me to actually bloody bring him into the episode uh john it's <laughs> good, good to actually from um yes yeah, so john first of all before we talk about the cross cross, cross border rail project do you want to introduce yourself
1: Right. So um, uh, I'm relatively new to railway work. Um, I'm basically a European Union politics nerd by background who, out of political conviction, travel the hell of a lot by train. Um, And um, as a result of actually working on Brexit related things, I'm British and I live in live in Germany, um, I actually then started when Brexit became too depressing to ask myself the question, well, I need something else politically to get my teeth stuck into yeah. uh, and um, having travelled Europe wide by train for work for many years and lots of things break down. Um, trying to do something about improving Europe's railways seemed like a good bet uh, to try to work on. Uh, and so that's how I come to them being working on these these topics. Um, so I've been focusing heavily on trying to solve some of the problems of Europe wide night trains and why there are so few of them. Uh, and trying to resolve some problems with night train. Rolling stock um, was one of the things I worked on first. I also know a lot of people are working on um, uh, ticketing Europe wide, so why is there kind of no Skyscanner for rail or kayak for rail kind of equivalent? And the thing I then did, which we're gonna talk about mostly today, was I crossed all of the internal borders of the European Union that you can cross by train in one uh, massive trip. (laughs) it was massive it was huge. <laughs> yeah well, yeah exactly i did take a couple of small breaks in berlin in between because otherwise i think i would have fallen over um <laughs> so that ended up being a uh, 30,000 kilometers by train um, and 95 borders uh, that i crossed um i simply had to limit it somewhere so that's why i didn't go to the uk um i also didn't go to ireland because ireland has only an external uh, eu yeah. borders only internal eu borders i did also add Norway and Switzerland and Liechtenstein, uh, as well as EU countries, simply because they were easy. And so, one of the things I might actually be doing in 2023 is completing the other borders, right? So, uh, Western Balkans. Um, yeah, yeah. Hey, that, maybe, that's
0: where I get interested. In. As someone who goes to Serbia yeah, maybe, frequently, I'll
1: be paying t- close attention to that. Yeah. Moldova, Ukraine, and so on. I simply had to limit it to somewhere. But basically, yes. as I'm an EU politics nerd and this problem needs to be solved by the European Union, it made sense to look at internal EU borders. Um, and that's how the choice was then essentially made. Um, And it all comes back to an old report which was written by a former member of the European Parliament called Michel Kramer in 2015. And he published a paper which was called Missing Links. It said here are 15 places where basically there used to be railway lines crossing borders within the EU, and they've all fallen into disrepair. So here are some places where the European Union ought to basically put that right. And in, during some COVID lockdown, I was bored. I was like, oh, what happens to those 15 uh, things that you put in his report? And, and ultimately, only one, um, at a border of um, Bavaria to, to Czech Republic, um, Mark Drabitz to Ash in Czechia, uh, had anything been done. And so I started asking myself a question. Well, hang on a minute. Well. What could be done and indeed would there be any hope of improving those individual connections? So his uh, 15 projects turned into then um, uh, 95 border crossings and a whole kind of like, dynamic kind of um, started up um, over the past 12 months. Absolutely. Anyway, yeah, so that's hash cross-border rail. Um, used to be a lot on Twitter, but a uh, slightly different point. I have a bit of a falling out with uh, the way Twitter is being run at the moment, so I'm not very active on Twitter. I'm mostly on Mastodon on, on uh, hash cross-border rail. But you can also find the website for the project cross-borderrail.trainsfoeurope.eu yeah. Actually, that's a very good point because, as uh, which,
0: as in Blue Peter style, here is the website. It's a good website. You can drop in, yeah, um,
1: crossborderrail.trainsforeurope.eu, uh, which language. explains a bit. Explains a bit what I did, um, and also which we'll talk about now as well. Out um, of those ninety-five border crossings, there were then twenty um, of those places I went, uh, where there are things you could do very quickly and quite easily. Um, in order to manage to um, uh, improve the cross-border railway lines. Um, so that's a quick kind yeah. of... And so actually, I'm going to do... So there are two maps. I mean, in fact, there are
0: three maps that we're, we're going to have up tonight. Um, the first is, I believe, your journey, which is this yeah, exactly. This map here, which oh, is gives an epic idea of what was yeah. happening.
1: spectacular um basically the the the, the days alternate there's like yellow orange days and the following days like blue purple days and every individual train has a slightly different color um so that's what uh, that map shows and if it's green dotted lines that's something else like like a ferry or a bus or something you can see quite a lot of unpleasant rail replacement bus services up in the nordic countries going on there yes oh golly yeah my goodness and um,
0: and then that so, so that's a map that's, that's that's brilliant fun if you if anyone's out there wants to repeat this process good golly uh, yeah. as ever by the way in the chat do add me in if you've got a question because john and i can pick those up uh, uh appropriate gaps but the other map you've done which is brilliant and you said before the uh in the when we were prepping this you, you said this is this is a work in progress so you're continuing to
1: refine and improve uh this well, it, map and, and add bits to it so the research is pretty much done here so I've, i'm up to so this second map it maps every cross-border railway line there is or has ever been in Europe, right? Now, the icons determine what is there. Is it a route that's fallen into disrepair? Is it a route where there is still a track, but there are no passenger trains running? Or are there actually passenger trains running as well? And pink is all of the places I went this year. Orange is all the other places I've been. And gray are all of the ones that I'm missing. You can see yeah, here. Okay, yeah. I've been to something like 130, 140 borders, but I've got a hell of a lot more to yeah. do. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it's crazy. Borders the Czech Republic, yeah, yeah. And Germany, there. Right. Um, now, that's been. As a result of a large lot of a, 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 actually a European Commission report from 2018 helped me put that together, and I've added at least a hundred more out of my own research. Mm. It's basically all of the internal borders of the EU, but also UK and Ireland, Moldova, Ukraine, and all of the Balkans. Right. Yes. So, like Northern Ireland border is super depressing. I was going to say, yeah, awesome. that's just absolutely bleak. Yeah, but situation, one yeah. active line there at the bottom you can see, whereas all the others are all out of action. Um, yeah. Anyway, My so that so if you have a look at that map and help happily put it in the chat there, um, that there may be some borders missing. You also see around Belgium as well. Belgium had a whole bunch of cross-border tramways, for example, uh, narrow gauge tramways in the interwar period. All of those have been kind of dismantled altogether. But basically what I'm now going to be doing in 2023, at least, or I've not quite got the format right yet, is going to some of the places I didn't manage to get to in 2022, particularly if there's something interesting there. So something that works particularly well or is particularly broken in, in, in some way. Yeah, there's, this so yeah, the
0: bits that the, the ones that I always deeply frustrated by because they slow the, the ability for Dean and I to get across Europe are, are the connect and the most recent one was we had to get the bus from Belgrade to to, to uh, Zagreb because yeah. the railway the the Balkans uh, or, or the Serbian authorities and the
1: Croatian authorities just decided now nah, we don't need a railway we don't need to run that railway yeah. and honestly um, in in the twenty 20- well, the 27 countries I went to, the 24 EU countries and three others I went to this year, there are three EU countries where the railways are deeply, deeply broken. And they are Latvia, Romania, and Croatia in their different ways. Um, and so it's not particularly even the Serbian side of that one. It's actually like Croatia. The Croatian yeah. railways are totally broken.
0: Yeah. And and that's uh, we so this map alone could fill the episode as we could explore this, but and, and maybe someday we do just you know you can update us and perhaps that's something we could do in the future. But I will I'll update the description and include the link to this map because it's it's a brilliant little map uh, for nerds, uh, policy nerds, uh, collectors. People who like who are uh, partly obsessive and want to make sure they've ticked everything off. This is a, a fantastic map for that sort of thing, um, but also particularly just uh, history as well. It's very interesting to see the density of connections between, say, Hungary and the Balkans. Uh, there's there's Hungary and Austria. There's some very interesting um, densities of connections there. You know, between Germany and Poland as well. There's there's some interesting stuff going on. Um, so. Let us press on. Um, so, from the cross-border rail project, which we've we've got the link there for the the on your on your blog and kind of off the back of the cross-border rail project, you you wrote a piece about this implementation gap, which we've titled wow. the episode based on. Um, and I thought very very briefly and in true rail narrative style, there's a bit of a, a to, to describe what that implementation gap is. And this very much exists in a, in the uk as well in at gb as well so that there are lots of parallels and to be honest similar parallels in lots of parts of the world of this so this isn't just a uniquely eu f- uh, f- feature but we're going to talk about the eu so we have the macro element of uh, policy intentions right so so the aspiration if you like i've worded it and that is uh, the, the biggest one the biggest macro is we know that um Railway transport has to be kind of, if you like, the backbone of the way we move people and things around, um, uh, because otherwise we're going to uh, burn the atmosphere off the face of the planet. You know, we, we, climate change, you know, railways are a key part of reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions. And for, I think, probably every EU country, transport is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. And um, that's certainly the case for the Western European countries. I, I, I'm not 100 percent that it is for all of them, but it probably is, because for most developed countries, that's the case. You've then got the problems, which are the implementation of, of that in, in, in is the micro. So things like ticketing, online sales, timetabling, these fiddly, crunchy things that allow you to enable the macro. So actually getting to the aspiration, the micro is what enables it. So you've got this kind of path from micro to macro, from, from implementation to aspiration. But the challenge is that, as you pointed out, there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect between the between the, the aspiration and the implementation, between the micro and the macro. And that gap there um, is the gap that um, it is what you call the implementation gap, the gap in implementation. And so this is what you've explored. You've explored this through looking at the borders where you've got reasonably tangible things like they don't run any trains or there is a train at three times a week or 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 whatever happens to be or you you cannot buy tickets for this train from either of the national providers on either side of the border type situation some of these weird things some of them are more fundamental than that as and and i think we'll explore some of those um, later on but but this hopefully i don't know john does that reasonably well summarize
1: uh that that, the implementation gap is it's also how you kind of talk about railways and the public discussion about it right so if i'm being asked questions by non railway people they've confronted the micro problems yeah Damn, i want to book a train from berlin to nantes and i can't do it yeah. and oh by the way actually we're all ought to do it because of the climate change yeah, 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 right yeah. and they go but why can't politicians see this right why can't politicians act on this why can't politicians put that right Right? And that's then the kind of the crux of that gap. Now, the, the answer is ultimately, theoretically, at least within one country, if these things are totally broken, you could theoretically at least vote someone else in right? You yes. might want to fix it. Right. And at least we've got a national debate about the state of our railways, right? There's the ongoing debate where I'm based in Germany about Deutsche Bahn and all of its delays and why is that and the bridges collapsing and the, the, the trains always getting breaking down and so on. Yeah. But still, right? What is Deutsche Bahn's worst route? It is Frankfurt to Brussels, right? Frankfurt to Brussels had in August this year, 24% of the trains cancelled and of the trains that did run, only 49% of them were on time. That is a shockingly bad number. It's much, much worse than any routes within Germany. Now, why can Deutsche Bahn get away with that? Well, it's an international route, right? Ah, uh, it's that thing that runs to Belgium. For the Belgians, it's that thing that runs to Germany. Yeah. The state companies are not fully responsible. When the train breaks down on the high-speed line, which has only got international services, Infrabel in Belgium doesn't make available a rescue locomotive to haul the broken-down ICE out of the tunnel. And basically, you have what the EU Agency for Railways calls collective irresponsibility yeah. essentially meaning no one grasps it right now that's then the point which i then say to the european union basically saying hey look this is an international problem it's a cross border problem you, European Union, are supposed to be sorting these things, fixing these things. But here, clearly, this isn't working. So what the hell are you doing about it? Now, then comes the problem that the European Union institutions then say to me, well, we've set up the framework to allow the railway companies to solve problems like this. But my answer then is to say, well, clearly, here are the top 20 pr- things, which I'll come on to in a minute, here are exactly the points in the European Union where it clearly isn't yet yeah. <laughs> so, examples, it, yeah, yeah. How do you bridge that gap, yeah. right? Now, I was talking to a member of the European Parliament from the Transport Committee about a cross-border railway line that doesn't work, which connects the region that MEP is from, to the neighboring country was that MEP aware the railway line did not work no right now that is the depth of dysfunction now I didn't really know that at the beginning but now I've gathered such an enormous amount of knowledge about all of these places as a beam on the ground actually when I then get confronted by some boring, blah, blah, from a policymaker. Yeah, of course, we're pro railways, of course, we're doing the right thing for the climate challenge. I go, Yeah, here on the ground, this doesn't work. What are you actually practically doing in order to manage to fix it? Now, one thing, it sounds really boring. But one thing which I think the European Union ought to do is an annual cross border railway index that would basically be to say, and all of those cross border lines, which I've mapped or at least the ones where there are tracks that are still in existence. Is the situation at any given border getting better or worse in any given year? Because yeah, yeah. then we could start to say, hey, there is a problem. So one cross-border railway line in the EU, passenger traffic ceased completely in December. That was from Mons in Belgium to Noir or Emery in northern France. Now, then that would get a red indicator saying, hey, France and Belgium, you've got a problem. Now. Huh? In other places where it improves, they put on new services or or increase the regularity of the services, that gets a green index and you say, Okay, well done. Um Czechia and Germany, you've increased the regularity of your trains. We want to show that you're good. Yeah, right? showcase the good work. Yeah, only exactly. when you've got that understanding, can you begin to put those problems right? Now, what I basically discovered from this project is pretty much no EU policymakers have got that degree of understanding. Yeah. Indeed, pretty much no national policymakers have got that understanding to that degree of, of, of detail either. Now, it is a general problem or pretty universal problem Transport minister or transport commissioner or member of the European Parliament in the transport committee is not the place that ambitious politicians want to go. That is the place where you put your duffer like Grant chaps <laughs> no other job or, or, or Andy Scheuer, right, in, in Germany, where you've got no other thing to do with them, basically. Huh? Yeah. And so that then means. We are stuck with this problem that everyone is talking about wanting to put this problem right, but no one's actually really got the right answers for the solutions about what to do about it.
0: yeah it's it's I, I there, I, it, it, it's exactly the, the point you make about the parallels between you know, transport is for some reason, even though it's in my eyes it's it's the epoxy resin that connects every other policy area together. it's absolutely critical and yet, we so often find ourselves with unambitious politicians occupying that space. It is relentless. So I think, so So, so if we come back to, um, this this then raises, right, so we've got the big, we'll go back to the, the, the your top 20, as it were, of areas that are an issue in a moment. We'll come back to the fourth rail package. But even before we talk about the fourth rail package, I think we have to kind of a- answer the question, um, what is the EU? You know, what what is this pan-national organisation? How does it fit together? So you know we have we have the EU. Everyone knows about the EU. You know, here it is, wonderful. Um, but there are constituent parts of it. You also have the European Commission, the European Parliament. Um, oh, I've just realised that this is playing the audio in perpetuum uh, on here. So, <coughs> good God! I'm going to pause that. Good grief!
1: Right, it's deleted. It's gone, everyone. It's it's gone. Um, yes. So. <laughs> you could you could also add in here as well the eu agency for railways um yes as well where are they let me get
0: uh, you so, let's all oh, all
1: oh, where are they eu yes right so in briefest terms um the european commission is the <laughs> that's high tech and um, the the european commission is the um the closest you've got to something like the government and the civil service. Um, yeah. So you've got 25,000 officials working in the European Commission. The 27 European Commissioners are something equivalent to a quasi government. And then there is one commissioner who is responsible for transport policy, that is Adina Valian um, uh, from Romania. Those 27 commissioners are then supposed to be held to account by the other EU institutions, the European yeah. Parliament, which you can elect people to so it's 700 members of the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union, which is the representation of the member state. Now, the, the challenge with this right is in the same way as most laws in pretty much any country are proposed by the government. It is the European Commission's responsibility to bring forward new pieces of legislation, regulations or directives. And those then make up what you've just referred to, Gareth, as the fourth railway package. No, not the Council of Europe. That's something different altogether. The, the Council of the European Union. Which Sorry, is not- yes. I knew I was doing it. And I was just doing it, I was like, shit, <laughs> anyway, I know. Um,
0: Council of the EU. EU, exactly. Thank you. Exactly, yeah. Thank it's, you.
1: Always, it's always an alphabet soup. Anyway, but basically... The European Commission proposes the law. It then has to be voted by the European Parliament and by the Council of the EU where the members, the 27 member states of the EU are sitting, their national ministers. And then when something has to happen or has something has to be implemented, then it's the European Commission's responsibility together with the EU Agency for Railways that is based in Valenciennes. Now. Let's explain in brief how that worked with regards to the fourth railway package. Yes. So, these railway packages, which started in the uh, early 1990s, were trying to put right a dysfunction in international rail which still exists. Now, let's not kid ourselves that there was some kind of halcyon days of international rail in the EU. This has been broken in different ways for decades. Yeah, and yeah. these railway packages were. A solution to try to put it right. Now, there's lots of kind of reminiscence about the past in railways, yeah, Trans europa Express and so on. But actually, rail's percentage of international journeys in Europe has always, for both passengers and freight, been lower than rail's percentage of national journeys. Yeah. Right, right, since the post throughout the post World War II era, it's tended to be something in the region of like 15 to 20 percent of freight is on the rails in Germany. 15 or 20 percent of freight is on the rails in France, but only 8 percent is on the rails going between the two and the same for passenger rail. So that was basically what the European Union was trying to solve, was basically to say, hey, look, we want to get international rail in the EU up to the same sort of level as we've got it nationally. Right now, there are very big differences, right, the rails market share between different European countries. But let's at least make sure that rail performs as well internationally as it does nationally. And those are what those what those railway packages have sought to do in their different ways. Now, then has basically been and it's very much a kind of a 1990s uh, economically liberal way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> separate out the running of the infrastructure from the operations now. So theoretically, meaning that a german company has the opportunity to run a train into france or a spanish one can run a train into france or i don't know a swedish one can run a run a train into denmark now uh, and then the so-called technical pillar of the fourth railway package which is actually something there is a bit of a there's been a lot of work that's been done to give the responsibility to the eu agency for railways in valenciennes for rolling stock type approvals basically meaning then if you want to, uh, um, you've designed a new train and you want to approve it, to, it in order for it to be able to run in more than one country, those, that type of approval can now be done by the EU Agency for Railways and Valenciennes, rather than going to each of the national um, um, uh, agencies or, or, or yeah, legislative yeah. authorities in order to do that. So that's the heart of it. Now, does it work? The answer is, it depends where you are and who you are, right? Now, so... What I very much learnt from this project of the experience on the ground is not it's private good and public bad or public good and private bad. There are good private railways in Europe and there are bad ones. There are good state owned companies and there are bad ones. And there are better or less good ways if you want to of liberalizing your railways. So for example, I had an absolute nightmare in Sweden trying to plan my trip due to an absence of information in the case of there were engineering works, meaning you needed a rail replacement bus. It just didn't work. Czech Republic, for example, by contrast, has much better information provision and that problem is solved. If you look at a route like uh, Turin, Milan, Bologna, Florence, Rome, Naples, their eu railway liberalization seems to have worked you have two high-speed operators they've driven down the costs you've got good quality infrastructure which is owned by the state And in that, because basically all of Italy's main cities are all lined up in one row, that allows basically, it's something which is ideal for the sake of competition. Now, that is not going to solve you. A a competitive solution is not gonna solve your problem between two mm, small towns at some forgotten border somewhere where the infrastructure is in a a bad way. There may be competitive tendering might solve you the problem, but I don't know. Now, what is very, very important before you even come to the public or the public versus private thing is what type of railway do you want? Who do you want it to serve? How often should it run? And in whose interests is this railway operation actually being organized, right? Go to Decin, right, a small town of 40,000 people just south of Dresden in Czechia. The Eurocity from Berlin comes into Decin every two hours and intercity or a Eurocity comes from Prague every hour. Then in Decin, small regional trains depart in all of the directions out of Decin with a very well organized timetable. Some of them are run by the the Czech state operator, Český Drahi. Some are run by private operators and are done on on competitive tendering. Now, it is basically structured to say, these are the types of people and these are the people that we want our railways to serve. And from that, we're going to work out how to organize it. Now, if that were not Decin and that were Finlach in Austria instead, those trains would all go off in all of the different directions and will all be run by Austrian railways at the moment because there's not been competitive tendering of regional rail in Austria yet. But basically, both of those models work. What doesn't work yeah, is when you've got the worst of both of the systems. Now, the worst of both of the systems is Talis, the high speed operator between Paris, Brussels and Amsterdam, which is uh, now due to the merger with Eurostar, it's now only 80% public- owned, publicly owned, right? But it's it's 55% SNCF, 20% SNCB from Belgium and a little bit is still the, the, from NS. In, in yeah, the yeah. Basically still a state operator. And what it does is it makes it pretty much impossible for any other operator, be it a private or another state operator, to get a path into into Paris Nord Station. So there's not competition like there is in Italy but it's not doing anything which is socially orientated in terms of the pricing of that yeah, train, yeah, yeah. right? So if you take a TGV to Lille by comparison, which is only 20 minutes less ride than going to Brussels, you still can get some cheap tickets on it. On Talis, forget it, right? Like, I paid 140 euros booking a month ahead for a single ticket from Amsterdam to Paris, right? Now, So that is the worst of both worlds. Yeah. It is a publicly owned, company behaving like a private monopolist
0: yeah it's doing an impersonation of franchises as they used to exist in the uk it's doing the worst thing the worst possible thing
1: it's it's, it's it's grim right now so i don't care personally which way you go you can go the Italian way with competition and it seems to work if the, if the population is dense enough and your infrastructure yeah. is good enough. Or if you want to have a publicly owned railway, you can do that too. And if you look at the way public railways work, like Austrian railways, right, under the fourth railway package, which works with a much more socially orientated way of running the railway than the UK's railways run, yeah. you can do that too. The only thing you can't now stop with under the fourth railway package is basically allowing other people to try to apply for a path on your net If they want it, right now in Austria there is another operator, VSBahn, that runs predominantly from Vienna to Salzburg. And then, when it comes to cross-border railways, there were two places I went where there are cross-border trains not running cross-border at the moment, but they didn't make my top twenty because changes afoot. It's northern Sweden to northern Finland, and and Tornio to Haparanda. There's basically four and a half kilometres across the bridge at the border where there are only freight trains at the moment and no passenger trains. There. There is, um, that's, yeah, it's, it's right up there. And the next to Lulio, if you zoom right in, right, like there, at the, yeah, there you can see it Tornio right? Yes. So you can see there's a track. Um, but well, actually,
0: I've, I've, people have sent me pictures of that because there's a fancy
1: bridge with some multi-gauge stuff going on, I think. Like, you've been pissing with rain for days from the point I got there. And suddenly, the sun... <laughs> It's wonderful, um, but anyway, they will they will be reactivating that one. Um, so at the moment, you can see the black line on my own map is where I took a bike to get across. Um, oh, yeah. from, from. <laughs> yeah. um, and the other is another extraordinary place, which is in the in the Pyrenees, um, from um, yeah. at Canfranc. So from going from Paul in southwestern France, and I did go there. It's where the green dotted line is on my map. There you can see. Um, it's the um, oh, yeah. uh, very geopolitically interesting because. I, I when I was on the Spanish side, I, I got talking to a, a, a train driver who, who drove the, the, the trains to Canfranc on the Spanish side. The line was closed due to a runaway train in um, the 1970s on the French side that destroyed a bridge. Anyway, and um, this is the only France Spain connection that doesn't go through either the Basque Country or Catalonia. And so that's the reason why it's been a priority for Spain to reopen it is because basically, it would be if everything went south with the um, uh, with regionalism or independence movements, it would be the rest of Spain's only continental uh, connection <laughs> Action, towards yeah. the rest of Western Europe. And. Um, and again, there is political support from Nouvelle Aquitaine on the French side and Aragon on the Spanish side to reopen the line. Now, it's incredibly torturous, that route. It's super scenic, but it's never going to be a fast route between France and Spain. Um, I can uh, I didn't actually send them to you, Gareth, but there's some wonderful pictures I can also post in the chat that I took with the drone of the Canfranc border station. Um, so... Those were the two of the places that I went to where you basically said, "Okay, look, it's not running at the moment, but there is a political consensus on both sides of the border to want to improve it, to fix the problems. And things are moving forward. Now, what you had pretty much everywhere else was on one side of the border. One country wanted to fix it, but the other side didn't want to. So, for example, the future rail Baltica route from Lithuania to Poland on the Lithuanian side, it is impeccable. On the Polish side, it's all to shit, right? Like, they've done all (laughs) there at all. Whereas if you then go to the Poland-German border, the Polish have done all the work, but the Germans haven't, right? So you have this crazy situation where basically you've got, like, everyone again going, like, passing the responsibility back and forth to each other. And, And so, again, that would then be my answer to the 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 kind of allegation that this is all the fault of the fourth railway package now if you want an excuse it the fourth railway package can be the reason right you can always find an excuse for not doing something if you if you search hard enough now likewise if you actually want to act and you want to improve those cross-border connections there are places where it is steadily improving right like pretty much any border of Austria and Czechia it's Reasonable, it might not be perfect because the infrastructure is not always great, but at least it's going the right direction. The any border to France is pretty much all going the wrong direction, um, and the services are either worsening or get or, or, or getting cancelled. Now that then come, doesn't come back to an issue from the European Union. That ultimately comes back to
0: what it's is your government
1: railway? Government.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's so it's as with everything. The answer is there is a complicated range of of. Options available to policymakers at national, pan-national, and indeed regional level, because obviously mainland yep. Europe has much stronger regional government as well. So you're going to yep. kind of factor that in. um So the issue, to, so to kind of cla- to simplify, not to simplify, to compress that, there, there there are the fourth railway package, amongst other general EU slash EC slash EP slash C of EU uh, policy. Yeah. Would you say that it is on balance? A blocker, or a, um, or you know, is it being a blocker to, to rail progress? What, what, in a, in a fairly snappy summary, do you think it has or has not? Uh, it's both. Yeah. Okay. Um, I,
1: I like that answer. That's yeah, a very um, real
0: matter answer because it's some, the reality. <laughs> in
1: some places it's helped, and in yeah. other places it's hindered, and that leaves you with an outcome that's probably neutral. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. That, that that's the perfect rail natter answer It is both simultaneously because it's complicated and a huge number rail natter is all about saying things aren't linear and easy it's a huge spider web of post-it notes and you wiggle one and all the others jiggle around yeah, exactly that sounds about right yeah. yeah so perfect well off the back of that so so that kind of helps to, to richard smith is saying that's a very eu answer it's well appropriately so <laughs> the thing is as you pointed out the the good thing about so so if we go to the back to the cross border rail top twenty there yeah. are material you, you, the top twenty is brilliant because it gives twenty material things that could be solved. So if I quickly jump to the big, we'll, we'll pick four examples in detail. But I thought yep. very quickly we could actually look at the, uh, and I had had the map up earlier. Actually, uh, this is the map with those. And again, I'll put the link in the description. Your top twenty are here, and and yep. you can sort of look. It, it's quite small in the text, but you can see you've got the. It, it, I can go into my labels here, and, and it actually allows me to see. So for example, you've got the the Vilnius to Ternantas, um, uh, the kind of the, the the missing service here in uh, which is. Uh, slack-bang so Lat-
1: between Lithuania Lith- uh, and Latvia. So um, that's, one. that's one, for example, uh, until 2017, trains used to go from Vilnius to Daugavpils, which is the second city of Latvia with 100,000 inhabitants. And then the Latvians said, we're not willing to subsidise that train for the last 20 kilometres any longer. We're going to cut it back to Turmantas, which is a village of 286 inhabitants. And so I did that on my bicycle instead uh, to go from... <laughs> To so there were other people who were taking a bus on a dirt road there, and were walking the final two kilometres across the border to then take the train onwards. Now, the train exists; it is compatible with the Latvian systems; so it can run on the Latvian side. There's enough staff to run it because they sit on it. Yeah. Until- <laughs> Yeah, um, all you're talking about is a few litres of diesel. It's not an electrified line to extend that train as far as Daugavpils and run it back. You've got plenty of time. Everything is in place, right? We're talking about, I don't know how many litres of diesel you'd need. You're talking like 50 euros a day or something right? you want to manage to make that work? Can they manage to make it work? No, because Latvia says we're not subsidising Lithuanian train. The Lithuanians say, oh, we're not going to run something that's not profitable on the Latvian side. If you're a Latvian voter, have you got a lever, right, to basically say, hey, Latvian politicians, fix this shit? No, because there are... (laughs) people living in that rural area when i then took this one to the european commission and said hey what are you doing to fix this problem between dalgo pills and tormentors they say sorry um we've set the framework for this problem to be fixed and which my answer is well it's not being fixed so what do you do about it and they said sorry this is we, we can't fix this now and so again you get like the problem gets passed round and round in circles now if every politician right plays a kind of we're just going to um, uh, shift the responsibility onto someone else, then you're never going to get that fixed. Now, part of the difficulty also in all of the Baltic states is the nightmare, which is Rail Baltica, so the standard gauge line, which yeah.
0: is... <laughs> yeah.
1: Future trips on that coming, by the way, everyone. Yeah, from Warsaw, then to Kaunas with the Spur to Vilnius, on to Rio, and then to, um, um, and then to um, Estonia, to Tallinn. Doesn't actually go anywhere near Dalgophils, but anyway. Um, the... Um, The problem is, is basically everyone's going, well, we don't really have to do anything about our international rail at the moment um, because Rail Baltica is going to fix the lot. But and so the the project is, however, all geopolitically motivated. And they're basically this is they're building this line, but they haven't actually got a proper rolling stock procurement. And then Rail Baltica is going, oh, yeah, the market will fix it. It's like. Who the hell is going to take the risk on a railway line where no one knows how many people are going to be taking the trains? And you could really have a situation where actually the first bit of Rail Baltica to be completed, which will be Riga to Tallinn, will be like an island of standard gauge operation, which will have no trains running on it because no one's procured any. Um, oh, so I, it, it's a... It's a <sighs> don't get me yes, started. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, interesting, uh, that's it's, an interesting question, actually, should come through, through from Richard Smith, which will... And actually, again, from Ariane Berndt um, about fourth rail package which we'll, we'll maybe go back and pick that up yeah. because i i think it's worth but let us go through the four so so you've got a variety here you've got t- poor timetable ticketing problems missing yeah. service poor track back to the slides and i can explain the four exactly pages. yeah let's do just that so uh the top 20 we're picking out four of the top 20 oh by the way this is different to when john stone and i went through the missing high-speed rail links that was us getting excitable about with crayons about potential benefits to an overall high-speed network this is different we're talking about cross-border links that kind of functionally exist now uh, at least or did recently and don't anymore this sort of thing so of the
1: four that we're going to pick out here's the right. first so, so these are the ones which motivated me a bit at the beginning right which were basically international railway lines which had fallen into disrepair were not operable anymore and whether it makes sense to reactivate the lines right now ultimately Many of these were a complete pain, so only one of them made it into my top twenty, and that is in northern France, the border to Belgium, so between Valenciennes and Mons. Now, the the important point here is that the EU's agency for railways is based in Valenciennes, and if you see the map at the bottom there, there's two kilometres of track which are missing at the border, right? So all of those sidings are actually an Alstom manufacturing plant on the on the left, which they still use to get the get the trains in and out once they've built them. The two kilometers at the border are missing. And then in Quivrin, on the um, on the Belgian side, then trains run from there on to Brussels. So basically, you've got two kilometers of track which are missing, which if you reinstated them, you'd be able to basically connect valenciennes a relatively significant city in northern France, to Mons and then on to Brussels. So at the moment, if you want to get from the EU's agency for railways in Valenciennes to the seat of the EU's power in Brussels, you've got to go on some crazy detour around either via Lille or via Mauberge and Charleroi, both of which take you ages. Now, this one is very, very easy to fix. There's nothing in the way. The right of way is available. now. If this were a border between, say, Hungary and Austria, it would have been solved years ago. Yeah. Uh, This being France and Belgium, it's not solved. Now, one thing that particularly nags at me, I wouldn't necessarily expect better of of Macron's transport minister Bourne, but the Belgian transport minister is from the Belgian Green Party. Now, the fact that he has so little attention to international railways makes me rather sad. Anyway, but in simplest terms, Railway lines which were out of action of all of the ones that I went to, the only one you could really semi viably fix and made it to the top 20 was this one. Mm-hmm. So, um, a Valenciennes uh, Crepin, which is the border village in France, to Kivran in um, uh, in Belgium. It's also quite funny that there's a phrase in Belgian, Walloonian French, which is to say, Outre quivrin. It means like the end of the world, it means beyond Kivran. <laughs> And, um, and so that was... Uh, Rather
0: nicely encapsulates it. this one of the top 20. Yeah, very, very good.
1: So that's the first criterion. Basically, reactivating railway lines, it's pretty tricky, right? Yeah. Let's move to the second criterion. Mm. Uh, we've got them backwards here. That's the fourth. Oh,
0: sorry. That's okay. me. Uh, that's minute. Let a, me move this to the back. We uh, need the
1: green bridge next. Uh, 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 no, there we go. That one, right? No? Yeah, this one. Yeah, right. So places where legally operable railway lines exist, but no trains run or in some cases freight trains run and passenger trains don't run. So that is the bridge. Um, I'm taking the picture in Croatia and past the barrier is Slovenia between Metlika in Slovenia and Bugniaci in um, in Croatia. What happened here is the trains were cancelled at the beginning of the Corona pandemic, and because up until first of January this year, Croatia was not in the Schengen border-free zone, yes. they basically just put a barrier in the bridge. Right now, this you is can see it. The, uh, it's a bloody. F- they just put a bloody barbed wire fence up here with, with with barbed wire on top of it. Now. One of the things which I have some hope for, though it's a kind of a basket case railway, is now Croatia is in Schengen. It would then actually mean that reopening a railway line like this should be comparatively easy. Mm. So there are actually five cross-border railway lines from Croatia, four of them to Slovenia and one to Hungary where the tracks all exist but no tra- or no trains are only a very limited service is running, which should now all be possible to reopen those lines um, as a result of um, uh, Croatia finally joining Schengen. So um, that is the situation at Metlika-Bugniac. You know, there's an opportunity here for cross-border commuting because that area of southern Slovenia is economically relatively strong and particularly in a, f- in a town a little bit further called Mesto, there's quite some strong farm yeah, to yeah. industries so the opportunity would be to live on the Croatian side, commute by train to your job on the Slovenian side. Um, So that was the second. There were loads of those. Places where you could basically relatively easily open up a passenger railway connection. There's also another Slovenian one, Nova Gorica to Gorizia, which is twin towns, Italy to Slovenia. Yeah, yeah Gor- do- Gorizia and New Gorizia. Uh, yeah. For the, right. it's, yeah, it's a wonderful place. I can highly recommend it. And this bridge was also at a wonderful spot. So those were comparatively easy. Loads of places where you basically go. Or down with Daugavpils to Mantas, right? It's an active yeah. railway line, but with no, with no passenger trains. So those loads of those comparatively easy to fix, right? So that's the second criterion. The third is timetable coordination. So here we are at Ventimiglia on the Mediterranean coast um, of um, France to Italy. I didn't actually manage to go via Ventimiglia in my project because there was a French railway strike. So I had to completely replan. So this is um, uh, one of my Twitter followers photo who um, who happily let me use the photo with permission. Now, imagine you want to make a trip from Marseille in France to Genova in Italy, there are no direct long distance trains on that route any longer, which is another problem in itself. So you have to take a regional train from Marseille to Nice, a TER from uh, Nice to Ventimiglia, the border station, as shown, and another uh, regionale in the Italian side from Ventimiglia to Genova. Now, the problem is, is they've not sat down and coordinated the timetables. So when you get from Marseille to Nice, you miss the train ah, to Ventimiglia by five minutes. Ah, oh,
0: the worst! I
1: hate stuff like that. <laughs> Wait, it gets worse. The next one is in twenty-five minutes, which isn't too bad. Okay, right? okay, okay. That's, that's but that one, when it gets to the border, misses the next train from Ventimiglia to Genova by four minutes, and the next one is one hour and fifty-six minutes later. Oh. Right. So as a result of this lack of coordination of those three trains, you end up with an almost two hours longer trip time if you want to go from Marseille to Genova. Now, during my project, I met in Rome via a common contact, the head of regional transport of Train Italia hmm. and said, are you aware of the Ventimiglia timetable problem? No idea. Really? That's quite interesting. Right. No, I must say, now, talking... I, Got lucky there via some connections in Italy. I talked to some very <laughs> senior people in Train Italia during this project. Now, there were three <laughs> railway companies that were super open to me during this project from the state ones, right? Doesn't take a genius to guess which ones they are Train Italia, Chesky Drahi, and Urbit B in Austria, right? The places where some of this stuff actually works. Yeah, yeah reading between the lines, basically, Trenital is just basically pissed off with the French finds ways of making it work really well with the with these the Swiss and the Austrians, and the infrastructure is lousy to Slovenia, but they want to try and make it work. Essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, there are other coordination problems like that, a bunch of other borders, um, France, Spain, um, Estonia, Latvia, tons of things like that, right? Basically, where you need put, put organizations on both sides of borders, just sit down together and work it out. Yeah. You have some borders where the regional trains stop at the last station before the border on both sides and nothing runs through, right? Regional trains, right? So that's also the case between um, Chambéry and or so the, the Alpine line from France to, to Italy as well. Yeah. So timetable coordination there, right? And the fourth then, so that's the one with the other bridge. Yes. Yeah. So you've got certain really weird infrastructure or non-investment so, this is probably the most annoying picture I took in the entire, um, the entire trip. I had a drone with me, so I hadn't sent the aerial photographs. Here, this is the Polish German border between Zgorzelec and Görlitz. So, at the top of the picture is um, Poland going towards Wrocław. And there was a 2003 treaty between Germany and Poland to electrify the entire corridor from Wrocław all the way to Dresden. Poland completed its side about four years ago now, five years ago. And as a provocation towards Germany, built the electrification masts to the middle of the bridge, which which is where the border is. On the left, of the or at the bottom of the picture, is the German side. And you can see, although they've renovated the arches of the bridge, it's still only diesel. So you have this little kind of tiny DMU that just, potters back and forth between Dresden and, and, and Zgorzalec because they've not got around to electrifying the line now as a result of that you could imagine for example if you were to run a train like Frankfurt am Main to Krakow for example you would run it through here but as a result of the missing electrification on the German side you don't want to ask around changing your locomotive from electric to diesel to electric uh, again running so, diesel the whole way yet you don't run any long distance services through there or no one has yet tried. So you've got situations like that in a bunch of different places where you've got the the cross border bit is like beset by the problems of decrepit infrastructure. So something runs here. Yeah, but it's not in any way. Well, sorry, the service is as good as you can expect given how rubbish the infrastructure is, but you need to fix the infrastructure. Now, I hear from railway lobbyists all the time in Brussels the EU needs to plow more money into the infrastructure right across border connections. now my answer to that is yes, in some places like here, right Clearly this needs to be improved. yeah but likewise and that might have been one you you discussed in the previous episode with John Stone, There is, for example, a cross-border high-speed line between France and Spain, between Perpignan and Figueras, which had probably when you were talking to him four trains a day each way, and at the moment has only two trains a day each way on the high-speed line. So it's completely the opposite. You've got really good infrastructure, but no trains are running there. Just which is which is disastrous. It's just an
0: embarrassment to spend all that money, that impact, that environmental impact, the carbon emissions from building it, to then just leave it totally unutilised. It's appalling.
1: so you've got, you've got to basically answer which way round is it. Now, at a bunch of German borders, the infrastructure is knackered, but something is running. Right? And a bunch of other borders in certain other places, the infrastructure is actually OK, but there's nothing running there. Uh? Now, and so that's then a bit what you have to then basically unpack. And then when railway lobbyists essentially say it's all about the quality of the infrastructure, well, I'm not so sure in all cases
0: it's um I, you know what when i first saw this picture it's, it's funny that you say that this is an example of bad infrastructure when i first saw this picture i thought that's is that a render the track looks fantastic in that one yeah, well, it, but then exactly. of course now it's so the track's lovely but yeah the, you can see the, the masts bridge, and you can see the, the final anchor span there yeah. oh dear
1: yeah and and, and, and gerlitz, gerlitz is a bit like that right it's what's wonderful city it's really charming but there's no love there um, really <laughs> okay, yeah they've they renovated all of the the physical environment, but it doesn't work. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. That's so so those are the four different groups, right? So basically, reopen tracks which have fallen into disrepair. Pretty tricky. Run passenger trains on tracks that exist, but where there aren't passenger trains at the moment. Third is, where there are passenger trains, actually make sure that the timetables work. And then the fourth criteria are a bunch of like weird oddities where essentially you have things like this. Or, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. or there's, a, there's 2.7, if you want to go from Liberec in Czechia to Sittau in Germany, the train runs 2.7 kilometers through a tiny stretch of Poland. The tracks on German, the German bit are 120 kmh, on the Czech bit are 120 kmh, but the maximum speed on the Polish bit is 40 kmh. Oh. Everything's knackered. Now, both the Czechs and the Germans have said to the Polish, hey, would we we can give you some money to improve the track, and the Polish have declined, because they say, well, actually, there's a village along the route, but no station, so why should we actually have faster trains running past our villagers?" right? Yeah. Now, like, th- those types of things, when you see that, it makes you kind of mad.
0: Yeah, it's and, and it and it's not easy to just immediately wave a wand and solve those issues that the eu can only go so far to actually assert itself in those circumstances but well, if it provided money at, you know if, sorry right. go on, john yeah yeah
1: but, but, but you've got to want to do it right yeah, yeah. you've got you've got to basically first of all say okay look we've got a problem right we're going to sit the decision makers down on both sides of the border here at sigols election Girlitz, right what's your problem here why has it not been done? Yeah, and is yeah. there anything we can do from the EU to help you fix it? Right? Now, the EU is not doing that.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, the gap. That's, that's
1: the fundamental. That's the that feels like the fundamental thread that runs through, yeah. Now, you might then come up against a barrier further down, down the, 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 the kind of policy process that says, okay, we there's something that doesn't work, right? I don't know, there's a problem with noise, there's a collapsing bridge, a tunnel that's too low to electrify, whatever it might be. But you haven't even got to the stage to work out what the block really is. Yeah? And then comes also the public component, which is who names and shames the politicians that balls this up? yeah, yeah? Like, who is really to blame for this circumstance? Now, clearly, it's some politician on the German side, because they're also not respecting the treaty they signed with the poles, right. But you have a kind of passing the responsibility around and not solving the problem, which I find quite frustrating. And one of the things which I find, and that's why I was kind of motivated to do this in the first place is, again, we have no proper EU discussion about railway policy. We have Companies, right, the operators well represented in the debate towards policymakers. We have the people that build trains that are very well represented towards the European Union. But what have we got from the side of people who actually use trains, right, particularly passengers? Now, there is the European Passengers Federation that's supposed to be a lobby association that's supposed to be working on these topics, but they're very small and very weak. And can't really kind of put passengers' point of view towards the European Union institutions. Now, basically, those who lobby hardest win out. And basically, if you're a railway company, you don't really want to solve this one, you know, right? You're not going to make much money out of the cause of that. You it, yeah, um, and so. That's what I'm then trying to do, in as far as I can, as kind of an individual campaigner. One of the things I'm wondering about is, could I even build a kind of passenger rights association that would work better? Yeah, To yeah. then basically put these points of view, this point of view, to political decision. And this
0: comes, and this neatly comes to the kind of this this last point. And and we will come back to the questions, by the way, folks. But there are a couple that we'll pull up in a minute. This comes back to exactly as, as kind of rounding this off, which is how we close the implementation gap. Well, there are a plethora of ways, but I like what you've talked about in creating. A bit of a, uh, you know, a dashboard or a uh, almost a name and shame approach to these cross border
1: connections. Well, then the EU does tons of naming and shaming and all kinds of different things, right? During the eurozone crisis, hey, the budget deficit in this yes. country. is oh, <laughs> High. Reform your social systems here. Your taxation system's there. Right. Apply that to rail and to transport. Right. Then you might start to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Uh, now and then uh, there are some other political ones, right? The uh, the future European Commissioner for Transport can't be worse than Nadina Valian, right? It'd be pretty hard to be worse. Um, it's not that she is anti-rail, right? Like she just is not effective, right? Yeah. She was Romania's second choice to be Commissioner and doesn't really. It's not like she's working in someone else's interest. She's just not seizing political opportunities. Yeah. You know? um so there there might be a bit of an opportunity that from 2024 someone after valian might be a little bit of an improvement we can at least hope that sounds that sounds a little bit like there's there's
0: so a weak minister or a weak uh, kind of uh, elected representative can be bolstered by having a strong civil service around them so is that because the office of the commissioner is quite a weak would that help would a strengthening or bolstering of that, that would, office help
1: it would help but again it's the the Directorate General, which is like your kind of ministry, basically in the European Commission, is I would say it's not a particularly motivated or a motivating place to work. Right? Mm. It doesn't have the best reputation within the Commission as the place where if you're an ambitious official, you'd really want to go. The a person that's worth keeping an eye out for from there is the director for land transport, a Danish chap called Christian Schmidt. Um, probably for those who don't like the fourth railway package very economically neoliberal but at least a sharp mind
2: yeah
1: um so if there's anyone who's really trying to make some of this stuff work and also he is reading between the lines at least annoyed by the reticence of the railway companies to act and there is another thing which is afoot in the eu although this opens a completely different topics but anyway is that as a result of the inadequacy of the transport commissioner, Adina Valian, the vice president of the European Commission responsible for the EU's entire climate change policy, uh, Dutch politician, Frans Timmermans, has started to talk a bit about railways, probably as a result of the, the annoyance with inactivity from Valian. So he said, for example, if the railway companies don't put the ticketing problems, right? So the inability to book through tickets and the danger that if you've got multiple tickets, you can get left stranded somewhere. If they don't, if railway companies don't put that right, then we will legislate to make sure we put it right And the fact that he was willing to say that, for example, says to me that there is a tension within the european commission between the climate change people and they want better from the transport people yeah that's interesting because what when that happened in
0: the uk the organization that preceded the um the the department for you know DEC, the environment uh, energy climate change uh the, the the royal commission on environmental pollution um the they just got disbanded <laughs> Ah. It just yeah, so.
1: oh, no that's that, that's not going to happen here no it, it, and, and,
0: and you could argue that that the, the the climate change the DG climate change the element of the of, of the European Union's government organization that manages climate change is only becoming more powerful yeah, um exactly. which is a good thing that's a right, good thing
1: exactly. so now what's what's probably going to happen is they're going to come forward with a um the forgive me because I can't remember what the acronym stands for but the so-called MDMS regulation. Um, if someone in the chat can correct me of what the title of the md what that actually stands for anyway basically there the, will be the rules on multimodal ticketing which is which mm-hmm. basically will clarify who has to give what data under what terms to each other if you want to book a, ch- a, a train plus a bus plus a plane ticket yeah there is a new piece of legislation coming forward called the mdms regulation which is supposed to sort that out in the middle of 2023 now what will happen probably is the commission will come forward with a decent draft The European Parliament will go. This is fine. We can live with this. And then member states of the European Union, heavily lobbied by their state monopolist railway companies like PKP in Poland, will basically fill it the whole thing, and nothing good will come of it. Um, Because that's what happened on railway passenger rights a couple of years ago. Yeah, the commission draft was okay. The European Parliament was solid, and the member states said, "Well." International railway stuff is not our prime concern. Actually, we don't want the trade unions on our backs from the state-run railways, and they don't sell many international tickets anyway, so sod that. Now, that's a bit the difficulty which may well happen with the, with these ticketing points as well. It's not through lack of ambition from the climate change people around Timber Munson. Commission
0: I see. OK, so, so I think that kind of neatly... I think I think we've done a reasonable job there, of kind of picking out some of the challenges, but also some of the opportunities. I, I think it's a nice one that we've ended there on the fact that there is a there is a strength of um, of political will from the climate change side, if not from the transport side. You know, one of my complaints about the EU as as a as a whole has always been that it's it spends a lot of capital both both money and energy, you know, political energy, on building big roads everywhere. Um, you know, whenever you take a train, often you will see an enormous road being carved yeah. along while you're riding on haggard old infrastructure, uh, which is deeply, deeply frustrating. Um, but there's also
1: a point that the member states of the European Union can get money from the EU to finance railway projects if they want to, yeah. right? But it comes from the member states Up to the EU to a large extent, right? Now, the EU is not as good at going to those member states saying, hey, you're building too many roads. Yeah? Yeah. Um, And so it's got to go... Now, again, that's the nature of the beast of the European Union, right? People Uh, would get
0: very unhappy if the European Union suddenly had the power to stop people building roads. That would make member states very unhappy.
1: Exactly, exactly, yeah.
0: Um, as we've as we've seen uh, living here as I do in a former member state, and um, so <laughs> what we're going to do very briefly, I'm going to go to our two large faces um, and answer a couple of questions, if I if I may, yes. um, uh, and indeed. Uh, so we'll answer a couple now and then send more questions and we'll answer them at the very end yeah. so and uh, the, the question i want to answer is and it's it's a bit of a, a technical little crack it, it's miles up here it was from where was it it was a very good question but i've lost it because we've had a few good questions basically it was on the fourth rail package what materially is the fourth rail package from a legislative perspective you know, is it is it a, a series of laws yeah. is it is uh, is it a series of principles with laws
1: behind them what what is material the fourth rail package so it, it is a series of laws but those laws then oblige member states to change their behavior in certain ways right so for example on approval of new rolling stock it is obliged those member states to say actually above your national authority to approve the rolling stock. There is now another authority that can essentially impose new rolling stock on you. Right? Now, that actually came to a head because the Danes just buggered that up uh, when they wanted to try to run a new night train from Stockholm to to Hamburg. The Danes actually not so-called implemented the fourth railway package correctly in their national legislation. Right? So basically, you had the situation where you had, I won't go into all the technical details of it, but essentially the Swedes said it's fine if Valenciennes does it. The Germans said it's fine if Valenciennes does it. And the Danes didn't have a mechanism to say either it's okay that Valenciennes oh, no. can do it. And they hadn't got their own mechanism to approve <laughs> it. Anyway, so, now what then happens, right? Now again, we're back to the implementation gap. Theoretically, the European Commission can invest a, investigate a country that's not implemented it correctly. And then bring that country to the European Court of Justice and fine them for non-implementation. Now, there's a big hoo-ha about this in the in the political debate, because I, I, um, I see some people have been posting about it in the chat. Mm. There is the private railway companies lobby association, All Rail, which has basically been complaining like hell all the time when some countries have been carrying on giving one kind of central concession. So the Dutch have just given a concession to NS to keep on running the central national Dutch railway network right now I don't want to get into that argument about whether NS should get a direct award or not for the national operations that's not my business of how and indeed probably it shouldn't be the EU's business necessarily right but the difficulty comes on and this is where the rub comes in the fourth railway package We still not really fully answered right is Imagine you're then a non-Dutch provider and you want a path. Right now, there is a process to allocate you the path. How much is it going to cost you? How much is it going to cost you to access the station that you yeah. need on your path? But maybe the Dutch have instituted a path allocation process which is only one year long. But somewhere else you want to run the train that allocate you a path for three years. So then you don't actually know for the subsequent years is it, you're going to get that path on the other side of the, of, of the, of the, of the, of the border. You've then got within the rules, you've got like the French, for example, which you could do what you could call a reverse Ryanair, right? So they basically price their emptiest stations the most expensive. And yes. they price their full stations the cheapest. Plus for the full stations, oh, sorry, it's full. You can't run any trains here, rival, Flix train. Yeah? Oh, and by the way, paris de litz where nothing runs, there's plenty of capacity. Oh, yeah, €920 Euros per train. Yeah, it costs you ten euros to run a train into Vienna Hauptbahnhof.
0: Now it's the opposite way around. It should be
1: <laughs> right for now. So you have the situation right. The EU basically <laughs> says so. In each railway package, you basically the first one says right by law you need to separate infrastructure from. Uh, from operations. The second one, you've, you've done that, but then you realize actually they're all colluding with each other still to make sure you keep competitors out. So then you say, okay, you need greater financial separation, which comes in the second railway package, and then there's the obligation to do that. And the third one says, okay, well, then you need transparency of your um, uh, of your allocation of your paths on your network, because actually we, the European Commission, have heard that the, that the rival from across the border can't get a path. Okay, you've got the transparency of the path. Then you've got the situation, it's like, hang on a minute, everyone's allocating paths. According to different rules, so as to mean that actually you get three years' allocation of path on one side of the border and one year allocation on the other side, or it doesn't work between the allocation of paths or the allocation of the staff, of the station charges. So in the fifth railway package, we'll try and put that one right. Now, yeah, yeah. And so, so you're. What you've basically got is a kind of cycle, right? So you try and work out what is or is not working. Have you put the problem right? Until then you say, hang on a minute, we haven't put that problem right. And then comes around the next piece of legislation to try to put the, the next problem right. Now, and the difficulty then comes is our public understanding of how that works is really, really poor. So I keep on hearing all the time, ah, yeah, but the fourth railway package has made type approvals for, for, for rolling stock Europe-wide just too damned hard. It's too hard to do. The Hungarians have managed, right? So MAV has its so-called Intercity Plus program, 200 kilometers an hour Eurocity carriages, built in their own workshops as a kind of like in Solnok as a kind of job creation scheme in, in a poor city in, in Hungary. And they've got the carriages approved for seven different countries under the rules of the fourth railway package, mm-hmm. right? Now, if the Hungarian state railways own manufacturing workshops in Solnok can can sort out that the carriages can manage to be approved, right? And you're then telling me that Alstom can't yeah. actually- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to run to the first station across the border like someone's not telling the whole truth here but the problem is, is as an outsider to this process trying to work out what the whole truth even is is very very difficult because again the railway press will just basically regurgitate to a large extent what the railway industry tells them, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And someone in my shoes as a campaigner, I can learn as much about the technical details as I possibly can, right? But I've never personally done a rolling stock approval. Now, so out of that, right, there are people who can solve these problems, yeah? Um, But my ultimate conclusion is you, you need the political will to want to solve them first before yeah, yeah. you come to an operator, right? And that then is, but so I've gone a bit off the topic of exactly what the fourth round yeah, is. No, no, but I think that neatly lays it out, yeah. Of European Union law, which regulates some powers the European union got this directly and places some legal obligations on the member states of the European Union to themselves change their behaviour.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that neatly kind of uh, goes into Richard Smith's question off the back of that, which is, does EU law... Do the the, the various rail packages prevent the subsidy of cross-border services and only allow regional services for domestic trade, regional subsidy for domestic trains? Sort of.
1: Right now. So the there is no such thing as an EU wide public service obligation. Right. So you can say, basically, this is the service we want. Actually, this is the difference between how much it would cost and what we get from the ticket price, we will award a subsidy for the operation of that train, right? Which is how regional services work in most European European countries. There is no such thing as a cross-border one, right? Now, what you can do if you've got good politics on both sides of the border is you, you do a, like Berlin-Brandenburg to Poland, for example. There are loads of regional trains which are subsidized this way. Berlin-Brandenburg subsidizes them on the German bit, and the Polish region subsidizes them on the Polish bit, because the two regions sat down together and worked out how to do it. Now, there is this misnomer in European rail, which comes from the the, the Swedes, the Danes and the Belgians, which say the whole reason why night trains from Scandinavia to Central Europe don't work is because the Germans don't give public service obligation contracts for long distance trains. Right. It's literally not possible in German law. Now, ultimately, that's that's true. But the argument is bullshit. The <laughs> night trains couldn't be run from Sweden to Germany was no one had any night trains. Right. There, there yeah. are companies which are open, open access operators that succeeded in running night trains at the relatively low level there is if you run at 200 kilometers an hour lower on the German network. Right now. That is a problem potentially in Germany. Maybe there might be some corners of the country that you might be able to cover with a long distance service if you subsidized it. Right. But among the very long list of problems and dysfunctions with railways in Germany that you can't do PSO contracts for German long distance trains, in my view, ranks comparatively low. And you can definitely do regional train, right, public service obligation contracts. So, like... You can fix that if you've got the right political will. Now, maybe you should medium term be able to allocate a PSO contract Europe wide and do some kind of Europe wide tendering. Maybe, but the problem is not insurmountable if your politicians want to surmount it. Yeah. And I think this this comes to it. This comes to a bit of a core thing that I think
0: I've talked about a lot in, ter- in terms of GB and, and UK uh, transport policy problems, which is that that one of the core problems is the lack of core aspiration of the what's the question what is the actual question or or rather take a corridor you have what is the modal share that it, it is na- that is there is now currently between air road rail what is the aspirational split yeah. of, ro- ra- of of rail of road of air how do you get between them yeah. that feels like an eu level question so forget yeah. that where the borders sit you get you get a corridor you go right paris to berlin that's a yeah. corridor these are the modal shares. We want, the, the, you know, the climate change element, again, as we say, says they want this modal share. That then allows you to determine what the required policy objectives are to, to provide that. And that doesn't happen. That doesn't exist. And it feels like you could play a
1: bigger role in that broad. Any, broad rush any, it, would have, it would importantly, it has the legal framework and the powers in the treaties to do that if so the legal power exists mm. right now there are some things that the european union has tried to solve in the past things like levels of corporation tags whereas where it's fallen foul of not having the legal power yeah. in the eu's treaties to literally do it the way it wanted to do yeah. it in all of railway policy that is not the problem there is the formal legal power for the european union to do that sort of thing this is not legal as a problem this is political as a yeah. problem yeah. right you have to convince those countries and their national railway operators to want to be able to act um uh, so it's, it's very very important you can you can solve the legal problem if yeah, you want that, that that's
0: a key uh, in a way that's a really key one for us everyone hello everyone in the chat by the way i'm loving how many people from pan-european train twitter are here hello um uh hello all of you um yeah that feels like a core thing is that the eu has the power to talk about mode share
1: on corridors and that that yeah. would then set that would there's, essentially set the shape there is a point in the chat which is correct so there is a modal share regulation for the corridors for freight under 10t right so okay, trans european yeah, yeah. networks transport corridors which is correct right but the problem is is not the modal share on 10t networks is the slow implementation yeah. so the european commission is really really sluggish and making sure that when there are gaps in 10t right germany has been saying it's going to four track Mannheim to basel for <laughs> god knows how many years and still hasn't yeah. right so The problem is, is that there is no legal consequence for not doing the changes necessary under 10 T. Right? So that's why you then can't actually, so Richard Smith's point is 10 T actually meaningful. The answer is yes, it is meaningful, right? At least because if your line is 10 T, the EU has more financial means at its disposal yeah, okay. to be able to improve the infrastructure. But again, only if the country in whose territory the line is really wants to do it. Now, at the border, right, I went to one, it's a really complicated project. Germany, the line Freiburg, Breisach, Folgersheim, Colmar, so Alsace to uh, Baden Wurttemberg, right? It, Germany wants that as a 10T comprehensive network line. Now, the the bridge across the Rhine was bombed in World War II. In the 50s, the railway bridge was replaced by a road bridge on the old foundations of the railway bridge. And today, you'd either have to build a new road bridge and replace put the railway back or build a new railway. And there's a hydroelectric power station there. It's a
2: total mess.
1: (laughs) But Germany wants this in 10T and France doesn't. Right, so you've got to, so you're like, are we going to put it in or not? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, answer in principle, however, though, right, is so what again? What Will Deakin's comment in the chat, right? The TEN-T program was established by the European Commission to support the construction, upgrade, transport infrastructure. Yes, right. But again, you've got to make sure what is the Commission telling the member states what to do, and what is the member states actually then asking for money from the Commission. Right. Yeah. And so there are lines, for example, one which I've been like get, driving every German railway nerd mad is is northeastern Bavaria, the border to Czechia. So basically, everything around Hof, Nuremberg, Hof to um, uh, to Hebb and um, and across through Wald. Basically, there are three lines there which are both uh, d- d- dual track diesel lines, which also have some freight and have an international significance for Nuremberg, Pilsen, Prague. And Munich, Prague, right now, half of those tracks are 10t, but but Germany's going. We we don't think in our national calculation that electrifying them makes sense, no. right now let's not get into an argument about what does or does not make sense for electrification. But Germany saying in our national view, it doesn't make sense. Whereas actually for 10 T purposes, it makes complete sense. Yes. Right. So you've got, you've got the, the policy purposes clashing. Now is the European commission going, Hey, Germany, you have a commitment to make sure that you electrify. I can't remember which bid it is, but like um, Nürnberg, ba- um, Bayreuth, Mark Redwitz, or something. They have a commitment to electrify, right? Is the commission putting the, finger where it hurts and saying, hey, commit, Hey, hey, Germany, you've actually got to do this, right, regardless of what, what you're now saying in your national debate.
0: But the challenge is that they don't, without that broad modal shift by a certain date uh, target, there's nothing really to hold anyone accountable for when the 10T upgrade, exactly as you just said, without that target of we need to drive the modal shift so that we bring the GHGs down, without saying this has to happen by 2040 or by this date, there's none of that pressure to right and to so, so it feels like there is a, a, a bit of a single, a, a bit of a single thing to push the EU and its various elements. There is, we need to see explicit targets for modal shift away from polluting modes. Um, so there's definitely yeah definitely some uh, usefully some positive some sort of potential positive messages. Anyone all of those listing from the uh, the DG from the EU from the from all rail from the European Commission and the European Parliament and the Council of the the European Union. Uh, There you go. You have a a thing to do. Right. We're going to... We tend to pick up some more questions in a minute, but I shall push us through the outro. Um, As ever, this... uh has been a, has been a, a podcast that i think will work quite nicely in audio uh, format unlike many of the others um, available on all good podcasting platforms hello to those listening in audio only form and um, as ever the the the, the plugs um paypal.me/gathdens for loose change and abuse the youtube chat which has been extensive hello everyone who's new in the youtube chat um, the discord uh, server is where this continues and it can, and this sort of subject is will it bounces around in perpetuity because it's very interesting stuff slash discord and if you want to support this happening and get the occasional goodie um and, and allow me to just do rail natter, particularly this coming year when it's the year of the baby. Um, Patreon.com slash Gareth Ennis to support me on Patreon. Thanks everyone who does that. Um john's blog john your blog is, is full of all sorts of interesting stuff uh lots of transport stuff coming up in there but also lots of from people who remember from many years ago you did a lot of very interesting policy stuff related to brexit and related to the functioning of the eu and its elements um but the most recent one you did is which is which was good enough that ironically i was dming you on twitter about this and then only realized when i jumped onto Mastodon to find you that the, the reason you weren't picking up my dms is because of this blog in two ways i was saying i can't access your other blog it's not loading it's because so many people went in to read this blog it crashed your blog (laughs) which is fine it's good it was about which this this one is about twitter um i might not agree that people should leave twitter but i agree with a lot of what you're saying about it i suppose my view is that mastodon is also not necessarily owned perfectly either and whatever but it's a good blog go read it it's it's certainly food for thought on the mess that is uh, twitter the, the good thing of course about twitter being owned by musk uh, is that musk is posting like he's never posted before and everyone is realizing he's a nitwit which is that for me feels like a, a positive reason for the website to burn but also it can't completely die because if it does um uh, elon musk will be walking backwards outside out of a saudi embassy at some point before the end of the year so um there are, it'll, it'll endure, uh, he will not. Anyway, uh, so, so there you go. So the, the, John's blog is johnworth.eu. A very nice blog uh, address. I'm jealous of that one, actually. That's very nice indeed. Uh, lovely, johnworth.eu. Uh, go to John's blog. Anything else you want to plug, actually, John, while I, while I have you here? I don't think so i think that's all perfect go to the blog follow john on mastodon um don't follow john on twitter for now because he's not <laughs> doing anything on there but there's he might come back <laughs> and of course next week's episode of rail matter is um well uh, i suppose potentially a continuation but actually it's every uh, asterisk way that the railways at 1993 resulted in today's mess um it's a fairly nice, neat number since 1993, given that it's 2023. Um, I just submitted a piece to the IPPR's journal called Progressive Review, which is a bit, basically a potted history of, of UK railway privatisation. And weirdly enough, it becomes quite a neat narrative that explains everything that's screwed up right now. So um, I will go through that in the episode. That is next week. Everyone, you can see. Hello. Um, oh, yeah, that's a good point, John. I should have asked you what you were drinking, and, and you're reporting in the chat that you're not drinking anything. No, um, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> empty here. so john that has been exhaustive and and has covered all sorts of things hopefully it's satisfied everyone in the chat that you've got lots of bits and pieces um uh everyone in the chat that's been brilliant lots of really good stuff in there but john honestly that's been a brilliant episode i've, I've enjoyed that thoroughly that's great and thank you for the invite no, an, an absolute pleasure um i think we've covered all the, I, mean, I don't think really any other questions have popped up in the chat actually i feel like we've kind of covered it quite nicely actually there we go yeah everyone's just talking about mastodon now fine right let's let's draw a line under it because we've we've gone at 24 minutes long john uh, have a good rest of the evening everyone in the chat you enjoy yourselves and from us at rail natter towers cheerio cheerio